Okay, we're live. Seems like forever since we've been here, but we only skipped a week. I've got to admit, I kind of missed it. I enjoy the debate and the repartee we've got going on this thing. So welcome back, everyone, to This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I'm here with co-host Laura Johnston. Hi, Laura. Hi. You know, I missed it, too. The reporters and editors we have bring a lot of insight to the stories that we talk about. But before we get to the good stuff, let's recap some of the biggest stories of the week. The mother of a man killed in a deadly daytime shooting linked to Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's grandson is suing the mayor and police chief, accusing them of impropriety in prior criminal cases that she says emboldened the mayor's grandson into committing increasingly more violent crimes. Basically, Andrea Parra alleges if the mayor and police had treated previous cases involving the mayor's grandson like they should have, he would not have been on the street August 28th. That's when Para's son, Antonio, was shot to death. The getaway car that sped from the scene after the shooting was registered to Frank Q. Jackson, the mayor's grandson. Frank Q. has not been charged, but the lawsuit draws from Cleveland.com's reporting on multiple anomalies in the investigation that resulted in police not being able to obtain potential evidence against the grandson in the case. Fairlawn attorney Pete Patakos filed the unusual lawsuit, which accuses the mayor of obstructing justice and intentional infliction of emotional distress. The future of the Global Center for Health Innovation, formerly known as the Medical Mart, is uncertain once again. The latest use of the building as a site for entrepreneurship managed by BioEnterprise has failed, and Cuyahoga County officials are hinting that now they might give up on using it to support the area's healthcare industry. Instead, the four-story building on Ontario Street might be used for more meeting space in the adjoining Huntington Convention Center. Tuesday's elections saw some big decisions in Greater Cleveland. Cleveland Heights voters overwhelmingly approved a grassroots push to change their government, going with a strong mayor whom voters will elect. In the existing system, voters elect council members who hire a city manager. In Lakewood, voters chose Megan George as their mayor. She's a council member and daughter of a former mayor. She defeated a 30-year-old fellow council member, Sam O'Leary. Cleveland voters ejected Republican Ron O'Leary, not related to Sam, as housing court judge in favor of Democratic newcomer W. Mona Scott. Countywide, voters approved a tax for Tri-C and gave the appointed sheriff more independence from the county executive. Most Ohioans renewing their driver's licenses are not opting for the more secure license that they will need this time next year to get through airport security. Drivers need a lot more paperwork to get the secure license, and the process takes about 20 minutes at the driver's license office. That's about double the time it takes for the less secure one. So far, only 42% of drivers have renewed with the secure version, although that rate jumped to 45% in the two weeks since the state started pushing people to get it. Part of the problem might be workers in the BMVs. Cleveland.com staffers who have renewed their licenses say the clerks strongly advocate that people not get the secure version. Cleveland's refusal to appoint detectives to fill out the woefully understaffed homicide unit is getting ire from the guy whose job it is to get justice for murders, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley. The unit has 13 detectives working when it should have 23. O'Malley told Cleveland.com the 13 detectives do good work, but have too many cases to put in the time needed to solve them. He says he is seeing burnout. O'Malley's complaints come after Cleveland has seen a rash of multiple homicides, double, triple, and quadruple killings. An analysis of homicides so far this year shows a trend toward younger victims, and the percentage of homicide victims who are African American has jumped in 2019. We also had an interesting story late last week about guards sleeping on the job at the county jail. Attorneys don't blame the guards, they blame the jail. I was surprised to read in our story that the county wants to identify the sleeping guards and discipline them. You'd think the county would look more closely at the root cause of why these guards were so tired that they can't stay awake. Well, speaking of working long, you were the editor of the night for the election. Good job there. Every time I checked the site, it was loaded. In the four-year cycle of elections, this was the small one to be followed next year by the big one. 
But that doesn't mean Election Day 2019 was not interesting. Let's start with Cleveland Heights and Lakewood. Those are two of the biggest, most engaged suburbs in the region, and they both made some big decisions. Lakewood elected a new mayor after incumbent Mike Summers decided not to run, that nine years was enough. And they elected Megan George, a 38-year-old city councilwoman and daughter of a former mayor. Voters had a genuine choice in this one. Even though George is on the council, she ran as the outsider. She was pretty critical of the government's secrecy involving the closing of Lakewood Hospital, and repeatedly she talked about how she would champion transparency, something we're big believers in. The closing of that hospital, though, does seem like it remains an open wound given her victory, and her opponent, fellow Councilman Sam O'Leary, who was endorsed by the mayor, said he'd maintain the status quo, and clearly voters wanted a change. Yeah, and let's talk about where you live, where Cleveland Heights. You were right about the almost two-to-one margin that wanted to elect a mayor. Yeah, this was another election that I think was about transparency. The form of government we have now, where we elect a council that chooses city manager, really has not been accountable. They worked in complete secrecy to hammer out a very expensive consent decree with the EPA without ever telling residents the EPA had a problem with the city. Then they ran the water system into the ground so badly they had to turn it over to the city of Cleveland, and we're paying a bunch of extra money to cover all the debt. Um, And there was no one to hold accountable. I think residents wanted an elected mayor to be accountable. Also, the forces for keeping the government as it is played pretty dirty throughout this campaign, and I know that turned off voters that I talked with. Cleveland Heights is a place that celebrates grassroots democracy, and having the city sitting government try to bigfoot this thing was never going to go over well. The other thing I got to say is just the optics. As you drove around Cleveland Heights, the signs that were for changing the government were clean and green and white and kind of gentle lettering, and the no signs looked like signs for Dracula's castle, all black and red and, and, and gloomy and foreboding. The symbolism of those signs was pretty stark. The other big change is the Cleveland Housing Court. Incumbent Ron O'Leary is a Republican in an overwhelmingly Democratic city. The Democrats told him he should switch parties, but he just wouldn't do it, and he got clobbered by the almost unknown Democrat, W. Mona Scott. The Housing Court has been a leader in trying to help the city neighborhoods, so we'll have to see what Scott plans. She offered almost no clue about her strategy in the campaign. Yeah, it was, this was an interesting one because she never, she didn't sit for judge for yourself. She didn't come talk to us. She didn't send her biographical information to the Supreme Court. But what I'm hearing she's going to do, she wants to create night court for housing courts, something that actually is a, is a pretty serious service. Uh, and she wants to shake things up in a way uh, that really looks to the, to the victims. And look, uh, the, the, a lot of African-American candidates don't get elected to judgeships in these parts. And having somebody who looks like and comes from the same background as the people that are appearing in the court uh, probably will go a long way with the, the people appearing in the court. We also had Akron Mayor Dan Horgan get a second term. Cuyahoga County voters giving the appointed sheriff more independence from the county executive, attacks for Tri-C, and the re-election of Mayor Georgine Wheelow in South Euclid. Anything else stick out to you? Um, two school taxes went down in Independence and in Euclid, and that was a second time for Euclid. They've said they're going to have some pretty dire measures in the schools to make up for it, and that's a town that I, I think is on the rise. So I was kind of surprised that they didn't, shell out more support for their school. And it's kind of unfortunate when they're um, trying to regroup and and move on. Okay. Speaking of moving on, you and I sat this week with first year Cleveland's team. That's the group that city council president Kevin Kelly assembled in 2015 to figure out why our infant mortality rate is so high here and how to reduce it. You know, I've had at least three meetings with this team over the years. And every time I walk out in a bit of a daze, they keep moving light years ahead and understanding this, this issue. The last time, they were beginning to explore the idea of structural racism, the different way white people treat people of color without even knowing it. This time, they've clearly zeroed in on that as a big part of the problem. Yeah, I'm with you. This was just a fascinating hour talking about... um the health outcomes of women and babies. And it's not just in the hospitals or doctor's offices that we're talking about the structural racism. It's everywhere. And the stress this causes for pregnant African-American women is undeniable. One of the most striking things they told us about is their unreleased survey of three groups of women who had been treated in hospitals. One group was white, one was Hispanic, and one was African-American. Clearly, the African-American women received worse treatment. They weren't listened to. Their concerns were um, kind of brushed aside. 
and their pain was ignored. They were given less time. And these findings are striking. Yeah. And the first year solution is becoming more and more about dealing with racism in the aggregate. Uh, This year is the 400th anniversary of the first slaves being brought to America. And this group is noting that 80 percent of the last 400 years, African-Americans in this country were either in slavery or subject to Jim Crow laws. And really, after the civil rights movement, it's not like the racism went away. No, I think it's inherent. And that's the idea about structural racism. It's in all of our institutions, not just in people. And on Summit, that first year, Cleveland and the YWCA are hosting Friday and Saturday at Public Auditorium will feature speakers and discussions about the legacy of slavery. They talked a good bit about the racial equity training program they support and how thousands of people have been through it. But they said that until everyone gets a sense of this, a sense of their own unknown biases, we're not going to overcome this problem and the babies will still die. Yeah, it's overwhelming, the scope of this. I mean, we're talking about four times as many African-Americans babies dying in their first year of life than white babies. So we all need to confront our internal biases. And it's not limited to babies who just die before their first birthday either. Think about maternal deaths and stillbirth. They're just trying to start looking at those statistics. This is a great group of people, and and First Year Cleveland has become a national leader in this research. i got to tip my hat to to all of them, including Kevin Kelly, for starting it. I mean, this guy's becoming a social justice champion. He's, you know, providing lawyers for people in eviction court. He was a leader in the lead paint, and he's a leader here. Uh, But I think First Year Cleveland is among the most important work being done today and putting this in a national lead. I hope the summit this week is successful. All right, before we bring in Jane Cahoon, let's talk about my favorite topic— Lake Erie. Yeah, you had an interesting Lake Erie story. The algae bloom of 2019 was twice as big as last year's, but it was not a crisis. Why not? So it is a 7.3 on a severity scale of 1 to 10. That's twice as bad as last year, not as bad as the year before. It is all dependent on dissolved phosphorus, the amount of phosphorus in the water. And we had a really wet spring, which meant we had a lot of water, but we didn't have as much phosphorus because uh, not as many farmers put fertilizer on their fields they just it was too wet to plant so it could have been worse it could have been better so so help me understand this and and maybe you don't know when does most of the fertilizer get into the lake is it in the spring when it's first put down meaning the algae's bloom that year is based on the fertilizer from earlier in the year or does it take a while for the fertilizer to migrate down into the the water meaning that 2019's fertilizer is slowly making its way to the lake. No, it's it's the former. Uh, it's dependent on the spring, generally, March through the July. Now, does that mean that there's no phosphorus dissolved somewhere else that's in the watershed that's going to come out? I don't, I don't know. It's possible. But each year's bloom is based on that spring's rainfall and fertilizer amounts. Okay, then. Well, Laura is becoming our scientist on Lake Erie. <laughs> In a moment, we'll be talking with politics editor Jane Cahoon about driver licenses, Josh Mandel, and Apple Cider. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome back to This Week in the CLE, Jane Cahoon. I bet you missed talking to us last week. Uh, Yeah, kind of like I miss a toothache. (laughs) Well, speaking of things that cause pain, let's talk about the BMV. We all end up there every four years to get our licenses renewed, and none of us enjoy it. You handled a story this week that seems to show that people are so averse to the long waits in the license offices that they're making decisions that could come back to haunt them. Yes, as you guys mentioned earlier in the podcast, this new high security license requires more documentation, social security number, citizenship, residency, etc. And apparently more than half of the people who are coming in to renew or get new licenses are not opting for this. It's ticked up recently to 45%, but overall, since they became available in January of 2018, uh, that that number is like 30%. You know, I just got mine a few weeks back and, you know, beyond waiting an hour to to get to the (laughs) counter, uh, when I did get to the counter, the clerk was grumbling about these licenses. I mean, it was, I was, trying not to laugh because she's just going on and on. She said she couldn't understand why anybody gets them and she wasn't going to get one herself. And why would anybody bring their bank statements in as proof of address and count on the state to keep that information secure? I mean, it really was kind of funny. (laughs) But as I sat there for the, the hour, you could hear the clerks talking, trying to talk people out of getting these licenses, saying, you got a passport, you don't need one. And we've heard from other people who renewed at other offices getting the same treatment. Do you think that might be a reason that the, the rate is so low that the clerks themselves don't feel like doing the 20 minutes of work and discourage people from getting them? 
I wonder about that. I did not have the same experience. I think I was the one who was complaining about all the documentation, not not the clerk. But the the Bureau of Motor Vehicles is, <clears throat> regardless, is very concerned that people are going to realize that this deadline's coming up in October 2020 and that they're not going to be able to fly domestically without, you know, with the standard license. And then they're going to be flooding the BMVs, and those lines are going to get a lot longer. Well, and just so people who haven't done it understand, you need five different documents that you can check off online. And then when you take them in, the process is long because, one, they scan all that stuff into a state server, which is why she was saying, why would you bring in a bank statement instead of a utility bill? And then two different people have to verify it. So so the clerk you're dealing with goes through and verifies all the stuff you have, and then somebody else does. And that that's time-consuming. I think what is more time-consuming, what the clerk told me when I got mine done, was that a lot of people come without the proper stuff. So it's like one thing if you hand them the packet and it's everything they need. It's another if they've got to go through and be like, no, this doesn't work. you got to send someone back. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns that I think are making the process harder. Right. I sort of went through that myself, I have to admit. <laughs> but I think the one question is the licenses present a special challenge for many married women because all five documents you bring in have to have your name on them exactly the same way. For many women, their social security cards, birth certificates are in their maiden names, while other documentations are not. I didn't change my name, so I didn't have a problem. But how are others addressing this? Well, I'm so glad you brought this up, Laura, because we women do often have to jump through hoops that men don't have to. And I have a personal experience with this because when I went, I I couldn't find my Social Security card initially. And then, um, as Chris said, I'm one of those people who's, who was concerned about having them scan my W-2. So I mm. tried to bring in part of it, a copy of part of it, and no, they sent me back home. And I finally scrounged up my old Social Security card, but of course it didn't have my legal name on it. Mm. And then I thought, okay, now what am I going to do? And just miraculously, I happened to find my marriage license. So I went back there. They gave me my place back in line. And oh, that's nice. all was well. But you're right. It's it's can be different for women, even a, a higher bar. The idea that the clerks were selling that a passport works just as well is, is pretty bogus, I think, because nobody carries their passport around. I mean, you everybody carries a license, but if you carried your passport around, it would get beat to hell and 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 probably fall apart. Um, but I so I wonder whether the the state could do things to make it easier for people to get this license because. People are going to want to have it if they travel into government offices or they go through the airport. And as we get closer to next October, there will be a crunch. There's, there's so many people don't have them. Has there been any talk at the state about about doing the public service that's needed to make this easier instead of forcing people to wait an even longer line? <laughs> well, they did do this publicity campaign on social media and they had a press conference. I'm not sure what else they have planned, but... Do keep in mind that the license, uh, the registrars are independent contractors. So I think there's a lot of variation in the way that they operate these bureaus. Maybe not a lot. I mean, I'm sure they have to file, I mean, follow standard procedures, but I don't know about extra staffing or, or any of that stuff. I had a moment of panic when I was renewing mine after waiting the hour to get to the counter, going through the 20 minute process. We're all set to be done and I'm about to pay. And the woman's payment system froze up completely. <laughs> and the clerks are standing there saying, well, I don't know. You might have to start over. I said, I can pay with cash. And because I could pay with cash, I got out of there. But otherwise, I was going to wow, have to start over Wow, lucky you again. had cash with you. Yeah. So do you, could you have paid with Bitcoin? Because Ohio was one of those first states in the country to accept the digital currency for business tax payments. But Jane, you, st you had a story this week about the end of that system. Sounds like former state treasurer Josh Mandel took a few shortcuts when he arranged to accept Bitcoin. Yes, it looks that way. The current treasurer who succeeded Mandel, Robert Sprague, raised some questions after he took office about the process that was used to launch this OhioCrypto.com. And he's one of three elected officials on the State Board of Deposit with Attorney General Yost, Dave Yost, and Auditor Keith Faber. And they recently voted to suspend this program pending a legal review by Yost as to whether that w this was done properly. And this week, Yost came back and said, mm, this should have been competitively bid because it's a 
financial transaction something or other. Anyway, uh, they they should have done the competitive bidding, so it's it's in limbo right now. You know, Mandel instituted that system just as Cleveland was making an effort to become a center of blockchain technology. The entrepreneur behind that effort, Bernie Moreno, was trumpeting what Mandel did as an important step forward. Is there a chance Mandel did what he did, taking the shortcuts just to get this done quickly to help Cleveland? Well, I think so. You, you've got to wonder why he was in such a hurry. There had to be a reason for that. Interestingly, I believe Bernie Moreno also was public about the fact that he was going to use this to pay his business taxes. He was probably one of, you know, two or three people. Or who, one. Who opted, maybe <laughs> just think, one. Yeah, there was like three, right? It wasn't a well-used like system. That. It wasn't highly used. Well, we haven't heard much from Mandel since he left office or even before. There he was all last year set to challenge Jared Brown for the Senate, and then he dropped out, went silent, left office, and disappeared. Does anyone have any idea what he's doing these days? He hasn't responded to any of our communication, and he's really been lying low, so it's anybody's guess. That's really odd because he was, I mean, lying low was not something anybody ever said about Josh Mandel (laughs) as a politician. Didn't he cite his wife's health, like, Yes, she had some health issues, and so that took him out of that uh, Senate race. But he just disappeared. He He did. He still has a lot of money in his campaign account, so maybe we'll hear from him again. Okay, let's talk about coal. This was one of Donald Trump's big promises three years ago, the restoration of the coal industry, and it has not exactly worked out. The story broke late last month that Murray Energy, an enormous coal company run by a Northeast Ohio guy, filed for bankruptcy. And this week comes worries about how that could get in the way of cleaning up abandoned mines. Well, I think somebody from the Coal Association said this is a wake-up call because Ohio's fund to clean up abandoned sites is about $23 million. And Murray has 13 sites that would take over $200 million to reclaim. However, we have no indication that they're ready to abandon these. But as I said, it's like a wake-up call. Uh, we got to look at this fund and maybe shore it up. So what's the answer? Do taxpayers have to pay it if the fund is empty? Or can the state tap into the rainy day fund? It looks like they would have to find a way to tap into the general revenue fund. Hmm. So they, they're going to have to be mindful of that. All right. Another interesting story out of the state house. Larry Householder, who needed support from nearly as many Democrats as he did Republicans to become House Speaker earlier this year, has been busy amassing power. Why is that possible bad news for the Democrats? (laughs) Well, remember earlier this year when Householder was running for Speaker against the incumbent Speaker Ryan Smith, and it was a bitter fight, and Householder did not have a majority of his own Republican caucus supporting him. So he had to turn to Democrats to get him over the top. Therefore, they've worked together on some issues. They have this sort of pact or well, whatever was, you want to call it. It was the first time in years that the Democrats <laughs> actually had some power. Right, right. And they've tried to use it. But now, uh, since Householder has taken over, about 40% of those who opposed him have left for various reasons. They've resigned to take other jobs. They're not running for re-election. They're term limited. They're retiring and sailing around the United States, whatever they're doing. And so you, he should be handed the gavel in 2021 without this big fight, you would think. Do, so do you, will he need the Democrats? Well, and what you wonder is, have the Democrats forged enough of a relationship? I, I guess it comes down to how, how much integrity and loyalty does he have? I mean, these are the folks that helped him get the job. They dealt with him in good faith. Now that he doesn't need them, does he just <laughs> completely <laughs> abandon them? Or will he continue to reach out and try and have some bipartisan efforts? We will see. What, one issue, uh, labor issues, he, they see eye to eye on some of these things, and, and Householder did get some labor support. So you got to believe they'll keep working together on, on at least that issue. All right. On a lighter note, Jane, lastly, we have the tomato juice versus apple cider debate. So what is that? So this is a proposal by Tavia Golonsky of the Akron area who heard from a constituent who suggested, hey, 
Tomato juice has been the state beverage since 1965. Let's ditch the boring tomato juice, and now's the time of year when Ohio orchards are selling their delicious cider, and why don't we pick something more exciting as our state beverage? So she's introduced a bill to that effect. You know, this just seems silly to me. I mean, really, if you're, if the legislature is going to pick the beverage of choice, it ought to be Kool-Aid. It's, I mean, it's good to see them working on such important issues while gun violence goes unchecked and we lag on, on doing things like that. Do they do these kind of dopey things for re-election campaigns or is, it, is this a way of collecting money from like the Apple lobby or something? Chris. This is an important debate about Ohio's liquid I mean, assets. Even she, in the, the her quote was like, we know this is not the most important issue, but maybe we need a little levity. And she made clear, she's like, I don't drink apple cider. I don't know people who drink apple cider. <laughs> it couldn't be like her personal vendetta against tomato juice. Could I, could I remind you, could I take you back a little earlier in the year when we had a proposal to make the sugar cookie, Ohio's cookie so this is not unusual you know, it's stuff. just a little feel-good thing may i also point out that it could mean something even though it's symbolic it could mean something to ohio's tomato producers they ohio produces a lot more tomatoes I than no apples. idea about that the yeah. statistics in the story it was fascinating we haven't heard from them but if i were a tomato producer i would not be happy well, about this and here's the thing right <laughs> sugar cookies apple cider generally known not to be good for you that kind of sugar not good <laughs> tomato juice Water. tomato juice is really it's good for healthy. you it's, i would prefer right. it so so if you're the legislature shouldn't you be pushing people no, to guys, drink Water should be our state beverage. Lake Erie. It <laughs> oh should God, be water. Back to Lake Erie. Back to Lake, Lake Erie. Erie. As long as we've got clean Lake Erie water. All right, Jane. With this week's election out of the way, it's your turn in the hot seat. And all eyes look towards November 2020. So thanks for freeing up some time to talk to us. Sure thing. In a moment, we'll talk about what comes after Cleveland Rising. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Pete Krause and Mary Kilpatrick. Hey there. Hello. Hello. I know that Cleveland Rising was last week, but we didn't have a podcast last week, and it's too big of a thing not to talk about here. Cleveland Rising, of course, was a three-day summit aimed at planning for Cleveland prosperity by 2030 with the opportunities for everyone. You both were there for the full three days, and you sat in on many of the conversations that took place. So what are your top-of-the-line thoughts? My big takeaway is Clevelanders sort of shed for three days this like intrinsic pessimism that they have about the future of Cleveland, like this idea that Cleveland can never change and we're going to be stuck in this rut forever and allowed themselves to imagine a better city and a better place. And I thought that was really monumental. I also thought it was notable that Clevelanders you know, we're, we're such a siloed community. Like people immediately ask you, like when I moved here, people asked me East side or West side. And I was like, what's the difference? I don't know. Like, isn't it all Cleveland? And people at this conference allowed themselves to sort of emerge from these silos and stop thinking about their community and what would better their community and started thinking about what would improve the entire region. And I also thought that was, you know, consequential. Yeah. I, I, I agree with all those things, but also, uh, uh, I was struck by the uh, all the new faces that were there that you don't typically see uh, maybe uh, talking about these issues or, or reading about uh, in the media. Uh, there were people from all over. There were, I mean, there were lawyers and bankers and stay-at-home moms and, and entrepreneurs, and they were all sitting at tables together, government officials, and they were all working on these issues very, very enthusiastically. Um, and, uh, and, and like I say, a lot of people that you would never have seen before, a lot of young people, both, uh, of, uh, you know, black, white, uh, uh, men, women, um, just a lot of enthusiasm, diverse enthusiasm for trying to tackle some of these systemic issues that we're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting in the sense that like you'd have like really important like leaders in the city, like members of city council, you know, members of the business community mingling just with regular citizens in Cleveland working together to come up with a better future. And, and I do think that's unique. As we've made clear, full disclosure, I'm one of the original organizers of this thing and Cleveland.com hosted the two-day design session attended by nearly 100 people last year to start planning for it. Just want to make sure that's on the table. Uh, I too was there for the full three days and in hindsight, I kind of wish we had set a more specific goal for it. Like if, for instance, if we had 
built the thing around increasing jobs in Northeast Ohio, I think we still would have gotten to the big thoughts that we saw about racism, education, workforce development, and transportation. But I think we also would have had some more concrete goals. What do you What do you two think? Well, I, I think that uh, it, it's possible what you're saying uh, would have happened. Um, but what I heard a lot of people saying is that the the root of all of these issues, this lack of of an inclusive economy, this lack of jobs for everybody, lack of preparedness, all stems from kind of these the systemic racism that uh, and lack of opportunity that uh, has been prevalent in Cleveland and in every major city for that matter. I mean, it's important to point out that Cleveland is tackling some issues that everybody suffers from, and and they should be given credit for for tackling it but but um it could have been more targeted although i think it would have it would have um not unraveled but i think it would have spread into all of these issues because they all contribute to this idea of of uh uh, economic inclusion i mean my major takeaway is the participants the way it was structured it was two and a half days and um a lot of time was spent about dreaming, imagining, um, thinking about a better version of Cleveland. Not as much time was spent on, okay, how do we do that? I think in the morning, the the last morning was when the participants really could kind of set their goals for how they were going to make their plan a reality. And when you have just a couple hours to do that, that's a really tough thing. Um, I think mostly um, the work will be done um, in, in the next few weeks and months, hopefully, when these groups meet again and can really map out their next plans. My other takeaway was what Pete said, the people who participated. I mean, I know a lot of people in this town, but I did not know 95% of the crowd at the summit. These are people who've largely never had a seat at the table. And for three days, they dreamed and collaborated about how to make Cleveland a better place. Um, while, while we may not have a whole lot of measurable goals, I do think we have some really fertile ground now for big ideas to grow, and I do think we'll see some big ideas in addition to the ones that came out of Cleveland Rising. Yeah, I think it energized a whole bunch of people and allowed a whole bunch of people to think that they could actually make a difference. And I think that's, if anything, that comes out of this thing, that's the most exciting because suddenly you have hundreds of people thinking that you know they can make an impact. Yeah, and uh, I was talking to uh, Bob Jaquay with the Gun Foundation afterwards, and he pointed out that if 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 there's one thing that if just one thing comes out of this summit is the is that there's a whole new breed of leadership, young people that that's been created that can move forward and that can be part of the decision making for the next two or three decades. That this whole thing was worth it because it really did. This was a you know, this was, there was a lot of leaders, I think, that were perhaps born during this summit, a lot of people that were enthused. And I, I did want to mention one other thing, though, about the jobs, Chris. Um, th- there was some targeting of, of those issues. You know, they, there were, uh, the, you know, the idea of creating a min- minority uh, 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 systems to help minority entrepreneurs and um, uh, and taking, like, say yes for education and expanding it to include not just money for education, but money for starting businesses, things like that. Now, obviously, those things are very um, – uh, would have to take an enormous discussion and involve a lot of people. But, but uh, you know, they did get around to jobs yeah, at times. Yeah, but let me, let me push back a little bit, though, because we have multiple conversations going on in Cleveland right now aimed at how do we turn things around. And that is, a uh, you know, in dealing with what clearly is the root cause, which is racism and poverty – but in, in every one of those conversations, at some point, and at many points, people have said, this can't just be a document that gets put on a shelf. We have to have a, a, a goal you can measure, benchmarks that you can hit along the way, and people who are accountable. And of what it, whatever it was, 27, 28 ideas that were featured on that final day, um, th- they're all marvelous, right? It's, it's let's make this the greatest place it could be. But but they don't really have that kind of concrete goal. No, no. And I think, like I said, that's a result of the lack of time. And, you know, I think that just forming the idea was what really happened at the summit and the actual execution and the the goal post setting. Um, 
didn't happen there. It's supposed to happen. The idea is that it's supposed to happen later. And look, it was magical. I mean, it, it, to, to, I, I participated for about half of it in an actual group. And then for the second half, I wandered because I wanted to, to hear more of what was going on. And, and the, the level of the conversations, I don't think the, the discussions, the depth and weight of the discussions really came out on that final day um, because you heard people talking about new housing voucher programs and a housing bill of rights transit. and trans. I mean, it, but people went very deep on transit. It wasn't just let's take what we have and make it free or let's put in some more rail. There were people talking about the future of transit as, as being autonomous vehicles or using Uber and Lyft to get people to the work sites. It, you know, what is the future? Um, and, you know, because of the setup, you're not going to be able to have a full report out on that. It would yeah. have taken forever, well, but it was good yeah. stuff. Yeah, and, and these groups, you know, and I guess we'll get to this, but but the, the 25 or so teams that formed with these ideas, they're charged with continuing their discussions as groups. You know, they have what they call launch leaders that are going to take these ideas in the next several weeks and try to develop them even more and to come back with progress reports and, re and report them out. Um, one other person who was at the uh, – conference I didn't or the summit I didn't see him but I talked to him afterwards was Bill Kaler who's the executive director of Team Neo and he told me that uh, you know if if some of these ideas emerge they germinate to the point where they they kind of they kind of demonstrate impact on the community and there's metrics that you can that performance metrics that you can you can show that this is working he says they're very open to getting behind it and that's you know that's the state Team Neo, that's state money, and that's important. That's awesome. So Team Neo was one of the big institutions that participated. The county had high-ranking people there, Jumpstart, Greater Cleveland Partnership, Cleveland Foundation. But absent was the city of Cleveland. Mayor Frank Jackson did not walk across the street to welcome the crowd or to offer inspiration. Any idea why? Um, yeah, I can only I can only guess. I'd, I'd reached out to the mayor to try to get a comment, and they didn't really respond to me. But... but um, uh, you, you know, the mayor has his own initiative. Um, uh, it's called Cleveland 2030, which hasn't, I think, totally been formulated, nor has it been revealed. Well, and in full disclosure, I'm also part of that. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go. You're And I wonder if I wonder if if the mayor, you know, who cares deeply about all of these issues. I mean, you can't. I don't think you can question the mayor's uh, uh, commitment. But, um, you know, I wonder if, if maybe, I don't, I don't want to say uh, if he's being defensive or he feels maybe his ground is being trampled on or maybe he's, you know, he's defensive uh, for some reason about some of these other efforts that I think he should get, get his arms around. In fact, there was a group that came out of the, uh, of the summit that said that very thing, that the city of Cleveland, uh, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, and Cleveland Rising all need to come together and, and – uh, uh, cooperate and coordinate their ideas. And I think that's absolutely what, true. I mean, whatever it was, I mean, it could not have been easier for the mayor to get there. It was across the street from his office. Yeah, he should have been there. I mean, when you get 600, 650, whatever it was, people together to move your city forward, just to go in and say, I'm glad you're doing this and I wish you the best would mean something. And it does say something to everybody that he wasn't there. I mean, people talked about that because... You know, the county was there. Armin Buddha showed up on day one, welcomed the crowd, spent half a day participating, and then had key cabinet officials there pretty much for the duration. And, you you know, Laura mentioned the other groups that were there. We've never had anything like this summit in Cleveland, hundreds of people, like we said. What moments are going to stick out for you guys? You've never seen anything like this. What what sticks with you now that it's a week later? Um, well, what sticks with me is, is walking around and seeing such engaged conversations. You know, one person that, that uh, uh, I noticed was um, uh, Joe Simperman, the former city councilman, who's now runs the, the uh, immigration group or whatever it was. He was so engaged. He was like a pig in slop. He was so, he was so <laughs> in his element trying to talk about these issues and trying to, you know, advance ideas. Um, I, I, I sat at a table where there was... Uh, uh, there was someone with um, the Bar Association. There was a stay-at-home uh, mom. There was, uh, um, oh, what else? There was a woman who uh, helps people who come to Cleveland uh, uh, to find new jobs or to take a new job to, to get acclimated. There was just such a variety of people uh, talking about these same issues. And I think that's what, that's what uh, I'll take away. 
I think my big takeaway is people at that conference realize that their um, sense of Cleveland that has been so ingrained in them, you know, in their entire lives is not the Cleveland that, you know, is is real today. For instance, I was sitting in a group about uh, retaining uh, talent and attracting talent to Cleveland. And we were just sitting there and I was chatting with this guy and he was like, oh, where are you from? And I said, I grew up in Texas. I moved here five years ago for a job. I mean, and he was just blown away. It was like they were talking about, you know, if only we could attract talent, if only we could get people to want young people to want to move to Cleveland. And he looked at me and it was like the future was staring right at him. You know, like I moved here five years ago. Like, it's not like people don't move to Cleveland for opportunity. And they talk about it like it's some futuristic goal that could never be achieved. But I think people came to realize that some of the stuff that they've always wanted to happen in Cleveland is already sort of in the works and figuring out ways to move that work along rather than starting from scratch. Well, good stuff. Thanks for being so thoughtful in your approach to it. It was a big investment of time. We're going to bring in Courtney Ostolfi to the podcast. I think it's pretty interesting that in the same week we're talking about how to bring Cleveland prosperity in the future, a prosperity plan from the past is back in the news as a failure. I'm talking, of course, about the Global Center for Health Innovation, formerly called the Medical Mart. And when I covered the county, I wrote a lot about this project and its big promises. The idea that it would serve as a demonstration market for medical equipment and supplies, but the idea never took root. I think the term Disney World for doctors was tossed around. The old county commissioner form of government came up with the idea in part to sell the new convention center, but it has been the two county executives who have been stuck trying to make it work. So it's not working, right? Doesn't appear to be. Um, Yeah, so BioEnterprise was brought in two years ago to kind of promote and sell space and get more tenants into the building. And, you know, they say they've brought in small leases and subleases here and there. But, I mean, I was in the building a couple weeks ago. It's I mean, they were super excited when the Aubon Pan was expanding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I remember when this first was floated. I've been around here a long time. I was a fairly new editor at the Plain Dealer. When County Commissioner Tim Hagen and one of the Kennedy clan came in to sell it, and, and from the start, the people who heard this idea thought it was harebrained. It never stopped being harebrained. From day one, I can remember it like it was yesterday, reporters and editors were making jokes about what this building would ultimately be when all of these kind of silly plans for it failed. And it looks like we're finally going to get an answer, and it's not a great one. Yeah, so there were hints and and people are talking about the possible use of the space as an extension of the Huntington Convention Center. That hasn't been officially determined at all yet, um, but that's what everyone's kind of pointing towards. Well, I mean, they're all connected, and I feel like it's already being used. I mean, a lot of people enter the convention center through that building already. So, but I mean, it is a waste. It's this four-story building. Yeah. That seems pretty empty most of the time. Has anyone ever done a community brainstorm on what the best use would be? I guess someone suggested it should be given to Target and so we could have a department store for all our downtown needs, which I'd be all for. It actually kind of looks like a Target. Just put the big, you know, big circle on it. it. (laughs) Well, you know, that's what when Bio Enterprise announced last week that they were leaving um, the development corporation that runs the convention center and the the global center said that they're going to put our put out a request for 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 ideas for what the best and highest use of the space is and they said it could be after that process goes through that the medical showcase entrepreneur area is the best and highest use but again there were references to the to the expansion of the convention center facilities there so we'll see what that request yields but um it seems like it's had a Look, from the beginning, people questioned, why would you put a, a mart, a demonstration mart for medical facilities downtown when we have this world-renowned medical institution and university circle? The other thing people said, Laura reported this, doctors and others who are buying that kind of equipment, they don't want to see it in a showroom. They want to see it in use. They want to go to the hospitals that are using it. Um, so the fact that they're, that that's even a possibility they're still thinking could work, it's 15 years later. In Budish's defense, he didn't create it. He got stuck with it. He tried something with BioEnterprise, which was probably noble, but it's a noble failure. And it is time to think hard about it. it it's interesting that 
when this all started, whatever it was, 15, 16 years ago, no one lived downtown. The, 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 the population of downtown Cleveland has exploded since then. And so you would think that the county council, which is supposed to be the big idea people, would say, hey, we got a four-story building in the heart of downtown, and we have you know, 18, 20,000 people now living downtown who don't have the same amenities people in the suburbs have. Let's brainstorm how we could make this something that makes a living downtown more attractive. So has Kenny Council said a single word? No, there hasn't been really any public discussion. I'm sure there will be. Yeah, I mean, as this process moves forward, I, I will say that, you know, it, it has been kind of agreed upon that the convention center has been doing decent and they say that they do need more meeting space. Well, so. And that's one thing to look back on the MedMart is the MedMart was the key to getting people to agree to a convention center. Right? Not that people actually got a, a vote on this thing. It was a quarter cent sales tax that the commissioner has imposed for this $465 million project. But the key to like the public believing in this thing was the Medmar. And I don't know that we would have a convention center that was viable today. I don't know that we would have had the all-star game and all of that other good stuff we've had in the last couple of years if we didn't have this kind of boondoggle so of the a end, side effect. the end justifies <laughs> the means, bait and switch is okay. Yeah, you're right. I'm not right. saying that. I'm just, I just want to put that in the full there perspective. Were, there were, before this, either two or three efforts to build a new convention center, and the public was not having it. So Hagen and Kennedy came up with this ridiculous scheme about this the MedMart changing it. You're right. It got it done, but it basically was a bamboozling of the, the taxpayers to do it. I'm not sure that's the, the best like lesson the, in civics you, no, that we I'm not can saying talk it is. about It's here. kind of like an if you build it, they will come kind of pipe dream that did not pay off, really. Right. But anyway, good to see you, Courtney. Next up, Cleveland needs a lot more homicide detectives, but city officials won't appoint them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We have reporters Adam Faris and Corey Schaefer in the studio. Hi, guys. Hello. Adam, you just published one of the most fascinating stories about a lawsuit I've ever seen. The mother of a homicide victim is suing Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson because she says the mayor's grandson committed the homicide, and she says the mayor is to blame. So what's this all about? So this was uh, pretty much the lawsuit was uh, pretty heavily based on our uh, previous reporting, and we talked about it extensively on on this podcast uh, about some of the the anomalies in this particular investigation. The getaway car was registered to the mayor's grandson. Uh, the homicide detectives went to the to the mayor's home that night. Didn't do what they normally do during a homicide investigation. And, and in two ways, the two there, there are two things they did not do. Which, which in any other homicide case, anybody that's covered Cleveland police knows the first thing they do is they take you in. Right. And if they took them in, they could have checked them for gunshot residue, would yeah. have been key evidence. And gunshot residue, huge. Right. Uh, What's the other thing they didn't do? Uh, the, gun, the gunshot residue um, and uh, the clothing. Uh, the body cameras. The, oh, oh, yeah, of course, body cameras. Uh, didn't have the body cameras on. Which is real, not the homicide detectives, right, but the patrol they never officers. Do, but the patrol officers that went to the house, the, the body cameras could have captured the, you know, the clothing that he was wearing, that, that sort of stuff. So uh, that evidence is all lost forever. Because they do have video of the two guys that get out of the car and kill this guy, even though you can't make out their facial features. But if you could see the clothing and then they had body camera footage that showed the same clothing, that would be pretty damning evidence and they never can get it now. Yeah, gone forever. So that that's sort of the basis of the lawsuit that along with um, a, a, a case that had happened about a month prior, two months prior, I think, um, to the murder. Well, Frank Jackson's grandson is accused of brutally beating a woman uh, over the course of you know 20 minutes or so. And the lawsuit is basically saying if the city prosecutor had done his job and filed charges against Frank Q. Jackson at the time, then that could have prevented this. Yeah, let's unpack that a little bit, because the stuff they didn't do on the night of the murder, 
is about getting justice for the murder. But but this other part is really the novelty here. They're saying that if the city prosecutor had done what the city prosecutor always does in cases like this one, where with this beating, with, with what the evidence they had, he would have been in jail. He would not have been on the street and her son would be alive. So ipso facto, the guy who works and answers to Frank Jackson didn't do something he should have done and her, her son is dead as a result. Yeah, and not only did they not file charges in that particular case, but they didn't refer it to the county prosecutor's office, which they the county prosecutor's office believes they should have done that because it rose to the level of a felony. And, and once this became... Uh, once the awareness of this case came to the county prosecutor's office, a grand jury indicted this on felony charges like that, right. which really emphasizes the idea that the city prosecutor didn't even see a misdemeanor. I mean, it is one of those that were preposterous. You did great reporting on this case, and it's fascinating to see that reporting be so key to this lawsuit. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting read for sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a lawsuit quite like it. Uh, it'll be interesting. The city, of course, will come back and say, you know, try and throw it out because it's a, a novel approach. But but it seems like the the, the lawyer, Patakos, uh, has an interesting principle at play here. So we'll be following this one closely. So I don't understand this next story, Adam. Cleveland voters gave Mayor Frank Jackson his income tax hike a few years ago for Jackson promising to build a fully staffed police force. The homicide unit is supposed to have 23 detectives. It has 13. Why is that? That is a wonderful question that (laughs) I think a lot of people would like the answer to. We don't know. Um, They had had gotten up to 16. Uh, I think one retired, one was arrested. And one uh, was had health issues, and so they're down to thirteen. They should have twenty three, and they this, just don't. Is this just about the the city's union nonsense? I mean, the way it works now is the the police chief appoints two for every two that the police chief installs, the union gets to pick one. So if they're down ten, you know the police chief would put in seven, and the union would put in three. Is that why they're not doing it? Because they so hate having the union pick people they're just not putting anybody in uh it could be we don't know for sure because no one will talk about this but um it, yeah and it's not just a pick it's just seniority whoever you know to, writes a note and says i want to be a homicide detective i want to be considered to be a homicide detective the person with the most seniority automatically gets it wow that's interesting uh, which has been <laughs> criticized by uh you know uh, national police um, research. All right. right, It's not the way to do it. Okay. It's not the way to do it, but they're down 10. Even if the the union system puts in bozos that aren't good detectives, the other seven would be good detectives. And that would, you know, add 50% more detective power to what they're doing. And they, they just won't talk to you, right? The police chief won't answer this. The mayor won't answer this. Where is city council on this? Why aren't they holding hearings? I know they've been critical in the past. Yeah, uh, and I think they tried to ask uh, about that at a, a safety committee meeting uh, about a, two weeks ago now. They were supposed to set another hearing uh, to specifically discuss the homicide staffing and staffing and sex crimes and domestic violence, but that hasn't happened. I should do it quick. You reported this week that the county prosecutor, Mike O'Malley, is not happy about this situation. Of course, he's the guy who has to take the work product of these detectives and turn it into convictions, and so if he's not getting the evidence he needs, he can't do that. Uh, what did he tell you? Uh, just sort of uh, frustration. He, he had a lot of statistics about um, you know the 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 demographics of homicide victims and that he, he had a really great anecdote I thought about how his, one detective was in trial for 10 days for one of his cases um, and in that time because of the way the department assigns homicides he got 10 new cases that he had to investigate or eight new cases in those 10 days so he's in the courtroom f- all day for 10 days and then gets out, has to go to homicide scenes, has to, you know, start an investigation, do that, could go all night, and then get up in the morning and go back to trial. You can you can identify with those kind of work habits, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> Not that bad. 
but we're looking at a solve rate somewhere around 50%, right? And we've had a bunch of multiple victim homicide cases lately, triple shootings, quadruple, double, and there are just not enough people to solve them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, we, and uh, in, in young, young victims too. I think there's three of the 10 homicide cases of young children this year have gone unsolved, including a six-year-old girl who was killed well, she was sleeping, sleeping. Yeah. Uh, is having a sleepover with her, her cousin. So um, it's, there's, there's a lot of cases going unsolved in Cleveland and those carry over to the next year. I mean, they don't go away. We talk about homicide solve rates at the end of each year usually, but I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of cases that haven't been solved in the last five, 10 years. You crunched the numbers for 2019 so far, and one of the most disturbing findings you had was how the percentage of homicide victims that are African-American has skyrocketed this year over last year. What What's going on there? That's just, I, I don't think there's any real explanation to that uh, other than it's happening. I mean, I think it was somewhere around 75% in 2018, and it's up to 87% this year. Um, Which so, is a lot. Yeah, and younger, uh, 40 people under uh, 25 have been killed so far in Cleveland this year, and there was only 28 in all of last year. Okay, Corey, you're up. You had a talker at the tail end of last week, jail guards sleeping on the job. But you had a photo and a video, and those were striking. You had unrestrained inmates, not in handcuffs, supervised by a lone guard who was completely out of it. Uh, tell us how you got that story. Uh, so this, an attorney approached me uh, and kind of showed me a, a photo weeks and weeks ago and said, like, you know, this is this is what's going on in there. This is what we're dealing with. Like, you know, on, on the very surface, when you first see it, it's kind of, it's funny. It's like, oh, look at this. You know, It's funny, but it's right. frightening. As soon as you think about it for more than one second, it's totally frightening. And to imagine being an attorney in there. Um, you know, this attorney was very clear with me that, you know, the defendant was not uh, violent or had never threatened this attorney at all. And there was no fear from the attorney uh, about the, the defendant. But the defendant was a homicide. suspect. The defendant was a homicide suspect. Right. And I'm sure not all attorneys feel that way about their defendants. There are some people in there that are in jail for, you know, there's there's a reason they're taken out of right. public, uh, out of society. So, uh, you know, it started with that. And then, um, you know, the, the reporting that we did about the attorney visitation from where public defender uh, Mark Stanton came out and said, you know, my attorneys aren't getting access to or the defendants aren't getting access to their attorneys. This is like a constitutional violation. The jail's not taking these seriously. Then that attorney came to me again and said, hey, you know, I got another thing to show you. And then they showed me the video, um, which is again, you know, kind of like this, I mean, this, this guard is out cold, like head back snoozing. Like you can see his chest is, he's snoring and he's completely out of it. Um, so it, well, the, the lawyer though was very clear that, that they didn't blame the guards. The attorney blamed the system for overworking these guys to the point of exhaustion. I mean, they're, some of them are working 16 hour shifts for multiple days, right? That's crazy. That's a lot. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what the attorney said. Like, you know, I don't blame these two individuals. They are, this is a symptom of the mm -hmm. overall things that Adam has reported. Adam and Courtney both have re reported, you know, extensively for the last year, everything that's going wrong in the jail. These guys are overworked. Like you said, they're working 16-hour shifts, two days in a row, multiple times a week. Um, the union, uh, attorney actually told me that they're grieving that right now. And it's in the, um, arbitration process to try to get this, the county to abide by the rule that they're not allowed to do that. Um, but then when you asked the county for their response, the answer was, well, we'll investigate the problems and discipline the sleepers. And that does not seem like the proper response from the county because it's a systemic issue. Right. So yeah, the county, the county spokeswoman, Mary Louise Madigan said, you know, I'm not going to get too deep into all the other issues, but we're going to, we're going to find out who these guys are. We're going to discipline them because it's unacceptable, you know, regardless of everything else. It's unacceptable we did blur their faces the when we published the photos, right? You can't, yeah, you can't like, well, no, we didn't blur the guards faces. We blurred, we blurred the, the inmates faces. faces okay. Yeah. Um, Have so you, are they doing anything to, to, to stop this in the future? Okay. So 
I, they go discipline the guards because they fell asleep. That, that seems a little bit mean, but but if there's a, if you have a problem where everybody's overworked and they're tired, uh, it, it, it would seem to me that the management of the jail they brought in all these new managers. Remember, the, they they lined up in a table here, the new sheriff and all these guys. They're supposed to be the problem solvers. Are there is there any indication? And maybe Adam, you know, that they they've looked at this and said, okay. We have a problem. These guys are exhausted, and that's creating a security risk. How are we going to go about solving that? Do we have any indication those conversations are happening? Uh, not to my knowledge. I think from what um, from what I was told after this uh, story and when I was reporting the story was that basically they think that where they are now in staffing, because they've brought in all these extra corrections officers, they're you know hiring more than they ever have before, that that eventually will take care of this problem, bringing in more bodies, having more jail guards to rotate through. Um, but as far as an actual strategic plan to get the right guards in the right places at the right times, I don't know that they have done that. Well, thanks, Corey and Adam. In a moment, we'll talk to reporter Hannah Drown about the story she wrote about her dad's miracle medical recovery. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah Drown. Hello. Well, you have written this amazing story about your dad and this recovery, this miracle recovery that he's had. Um, And it was a really heartfelt story, but also had a lot of really important medical information as well. So can you tell us about what happened to your dad and about writing the story? Sure. So one night in early September, he was feeling faint, lightheaded. So my mom called 911. He was rushed to UH St. John Medical Center, where they discovered that he had a massive pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lung. So they scheduled a procedure for the next morning, but before we could even get that far, he went into cardiac arrest, not one time, but twice as my mom, my brother, and I were in the room. So it was traumatic. It was scary. And then we kind of had to deal with reality. And the reality is that a patient that has a pulmonary embolism that goes into cardiac arrest faces a 95% mortality rate. And in my dad's case, he did that twice. And they told you basically prepare for the worst. Yeah. I mean, we, we asked, we said, do we need to be calling his siblings? We need to be calling his mother. And they said, yeah, it's, it's, it's time to make those phone calls. And that was probably the most heartbreaking part of it was having to call his sister and say, you need to get out here. And you, your dad had, had undergone some serious issues previous to this that he was in recovery from, right? What, it, yeah. So really, really healthy guy. I mean, he runs hot yoga, he eats right, but 2019 was just not his year. So in July, he was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's an autoimmune thing that that removes your ability to control some of your muscles, right? I mean, he was para- he was paralyzed up to he couldn't blink. So he, we had just gotten him out of the woods with that when this completely separate, isolated incident occurred. And he was he was going through rehab just to learn how to walk again when when this hit right i mean he had to learn how to walk he was going through speech therapy occupational therapy i mean everything imaginable that you have to relearn he was going through did the doctor say like why some why people get pulmonary embolisms i don't really is it just a thing that happens it really is a case-by-case thing uh We've been speculating a lot maybe that was because he was in the hospital for a month but nobody really truly knows you, you, one of the things you wrote was that, that even though they said prepare for the worst, and even though the odds were terribly against you, you guys never gave up hope. And that, that if you had one lesson for people, it's, it's that. Don't give up hope. And I mean, it, it's hard. There's moments where it's hard. Like I said, we watched these amazing, amazing doctors at UH St. John Medical Center. I mean, they didn't give up. He went through cardiac arrest twice. And it's it's rough. It's exhausting. It's just as violent as it seems, but it works. But it's hard to watch that and not give up hope. But sometimes you go through moments in your life where you think, this is something I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of my life. And that was definitely one of those moments. Sometimes it happens with good things. Sometimes it happens with bad things. But even in that, I said, you know, this, this isn't right. He still needs to walk me down the aisle. He still needs to meet his grandkids. So this... This isn't right. So then they transferred him downtown, correct? Right. And they did something like they were innovative. Right. So 
since they couldn't do the procedure, they put them on something called TBA, which helps break down the blood clots through uh, an IV. So they did that. They did that overnight. That still wasn't working. So something that university hospitals have, which has, which is really innovative, it's their PERT team. So what happens with that, somebody gets stuck and they say, I, I need help, which is really big for doctors to do. You know, a lot of times they, they, they want to figure it out. But, you know, it's kind of raising up your hand and saying, "Some, I, I, I need all of any collective insight. I need all of your brains. They did that. The group decided to transfer him downtown. Dr. Shishabor took over his case, ended up doing a procedure that's only been around for a couple of years on him. And it is really innovative. I mean, it's prior to that, they would have had to open his chest, which couldn't have happened because he was on blood thinners. So he would have had to continue on with that TPA, which wasn't working. So I, I don't even want to think what would have happened if oh that wasn't and, in place. And, ju- you know, just to... to explain how rare it was because of his survival the hospital wanted to feature him in their own story because this was as unusual as it was right they don't do that very often they've only done it a handful of times but they wanted to to go out with his story about the medical miracle yeah university hospitals released a press release talking about i mean he had less than a five percent chance to live Two weeks later, he was up and walking, which, remember, he still shouldn't have been doing well, based that, on what happened but, but, this summer. But that's what was so oh, odd is if he has Guillain-Barr syndrome, right, and he can't walk, and, and then this happens, and yet he can walk. It's almost like what he went through turned that off because when you told me he was walking, I was like, wait a minute. I thought he couldn't walk, and you were, you were shocked that he was. I mean, th- three weeks after going into cardiac arrest twice with a massive, massive block in his lungs, he walked out of the hospital. I mean, there, there, there's nobody that can't look at that and say, how did this happen? You did say so, though. I mean, you mentioned at the front end that, that your dad is this healthy guy. I mean, I forget how tall and what he weighs, but he's like, he's a good. And they said to him that one of the reasons he survived is because he had taken such good care of himself, right? Yeah. The one, the doctor, I mean, he's 62 years old, but one of his doctors said, you have the heart of a 40 year old. And if you weren't in such good shape, if you weren't so healthy, it wouldn't have been able to withstand all of that damage. So I'm, it's definitely a testament to being healthy and staying in shape. You think you'll be running a marathon with him again? I don't, I don't know if we'll be running any more marathons together, but we have plenty of hikes in our future. <laughs> okay. uh, thanks for your time, Hannah. I'm so glad everything turned out okay for your dad. Thanks so much, Laura. I appreciate that. We're so lucky to live in a town with health, the health care we have. If we were somewhere else, that story could be a tragedy instead of a miracle. It's such a hopeful story. The family was told to prepare for the worst, but they never gave up. And just watching Hannah go through it, I'm just, I'm so glad that it turned out the way it did. Yeah, you know, maybe we've been using the wrong people to revive the MedMart. We should send over Hannah's doctors. <laughs> They would definitely be innovative. I can't believe, though, that we're still talking about the MedMart, especially since it was so obvious from the start that it was a flawed idea. Medical professionals looking to buy expensive equipment want to see it using at hospitals. A friend of mine who's a doctor actually told me that last weekend. She's like, why? Um, They don't want to go to a showroom. So why put the MedMart downtown when the hospitals are at University Circle? It was was a little misguided. It was dumb. (laughs) We'll leave it there. Good to talk to you again, Laura. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks to our guests, and thank you for listening. This Week in the CLE is published most Thursdays wherever you get your podcast. To stay up on the news, visit cleveland.com and subscribe to our newsletters. The Wake Up is our morning briefing, and Capital Letter keeps you up to date on the State House and politics news. Sign up at cleveland.com slash newsletters. And if you have Alexa, you can listen to a version of The Wake Up on your news feed. We'll be back next week with another edition of This Week in the CLE.